Would you pray with me? Thank you, God, for those words this morning. For reminding us that you love us just as we are, just where we are, right in this moment, wherever that is in our journey. God, we need to hear those. We need to drink those words into our soul. Help that to be the one truth that we believe about who we are today, God, that you love us. From the depth of your grace, you love us. Thank you, God. In Christ's name, amen. You can have a seat. In the middle of the Gospel of Matthew, uh, he records like six parables that Jesus tells in rapid-fire succession. And right in the middle of it, he tells his disciples and those who are listening this parable. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. And when the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? And where do the weeds come from? The enemy did this, he replied. And the servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull up the weeds that are in the field? No, he said, because while you're pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let both of them grow together until harvest, and at that time I'll tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them into bundles to be burned, and then gather the wheat and bring it into the barn. A little later in that same chapter, Jesus goes into a home, probably the house of Peter, his disciple, where he'd been staying, and he sits down and the disciples come to him and say, explain to us that parable about field and the weeds. And Jesus said in rapid fire succession, the one who sowed the seed, the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds, those are the people of the evil one and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it'll be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out His angels and they will weed out of His kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. And they'll throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous, they will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. So I picked a real cheerful tone to wrap up this series, right? It's a great parable and a great lesson, so hang with me throughout this. Uh, That especially goes for the middle school students. Uh, They are in the service today, and we're glad you guys are here. Uh, And uh, we've just got a whole two back rows full of them, and I'm just thrilled when they come into the service. In, uh, In the agricultural society in which Jesus lived, farming wasn't a hobby. It was a way of life. It was a business. They didn't have raised beds out in the back of their house, raised a few radishes and lettuce and tomatoes. I mean, it was all business for them. And if an enemy came along and sowed weeds into your crops, that sabotaged your business. It was such a frequent way of getting revenge in Jesus' day that the Roman government had actually spelled it out as a very serious crime. The word in uh, this account from Matthew, translated as weeds, actually refers to a very specific 
type of plant. It's called bearded darnel. And it's an insidious weed because as the seeds begin to germinate, as the plant begins to grow, it looks exactly like wheat. I mean, look at this picture. You can't tell which is the bearded darnel and which is the wheat in that picture, right? In fact, it's impossible to discern them apart until the end of their growing cycle when they begin to form the heads on the grain. At harvest time, the head of grain that Darnell produces looks like this, and wheat looks like this. They even turn different colors at harvest time. It's very easy to tell them apart. But by the point the heads of grain show, the Darnell plant has this invasive and extensive root system developed into the the grasses and the wheat that's all around it. And so if you go to pull it up, once the difference is obvious, you're going to tear up a bunch of wheat with it, and it's just not worth the effort. It has to be removed, though, because at the end of the day, it hosts this little fungus. It's why it turns black, and that fungus is poisonous to any Uh, any animal or any human that might eat it. So the farmer made a very smart decision in this parable. Farmer chose to let the weeds coexist with the wheat, to let them soak up the same rain and sun and soil, knowing that the day would come when the wheat and the weeds would both be dealt with. I love this parable for a lot of reasons, but one of the, the big reasons for me is because in it, Jesus addresses something that bothers a lot of people when they begin to read the Bible. It addresses a question that I hear really often. It's like, why is the God of the Old Testament so different from God in the New Testament? I mean, you read the Old Testament and you see instant judgment. Huge holes would open up in the ground, gaping holes. People would fall into it and be killed because of their disobedience to God. Fire would come down from heaven and just wipe out whole populations or specific people who had uh, broken God's law. Individuals in high places were struck dead. Some were eaten alive with worms. I mean, what happened to all of that power and judgment and some would say anger that God showed in the Old Testament? It doesn't seem to match up with the New Testament, where we hear a lot about God's love and mercy and grace and patience. This parable, though, Jesus assures us in it that there will come a day when God's justice will come back. Peter says it this way. He says, the Lord isn't really being slow about his promise to judge people, to bring consequences for their actions. He's not slow as some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake. He doesn't want anybody to be destroyed, but he wants everybody to repent. Right now, God has made the decision to withhold judgment, to withhold some of the consequences for sin in this world, and he's showing mercy and grace to all mankind, even those who don't accept him. But this parable assures us that there will come a time when God will separate the good from the evil. We are living, then, in this time gap between Jesus' resurrection and Jesus' return, when God calls an end to the world, when as Jesus says himself in this parable, when, Jesus, when God will remove everything that causes sin, as well as the people who do evil in this world. A day he'll make it right. And so I think that Jesus then is just addressing here as much as anything the judgment, but also how do we live our lives in those circumstances? They're less than ideal. 
We'd rather have a perfect field with just wheat, right? We'd love for all the world to be good, but that's not the world we live in, which raises a great question. How do we survive when we're surrounded by weeds? And more than just survive, how do we thrive? Let me give you a a couple of thoughts as I've studied this passage and thought about it. I think the first thing that Jesus would say to us from this passage is if we're going to live among the weeds, we have to give up this idea of judging. Jesus is saying clearly we need to let God be the judge, not us. Now, I I would love to sit here and say to you that I don't judge people, but that wouldn't be true. We all do it, and I hate when I do it. You do it too, though, right? I mean, we judge people who cut us off in traffic. We judge people that wear clothes that are like two generations out of date. I mean, I have my own personal one when it comes to clothes. For me, it's I can't help but judge somebody when I see a guy who's wearing like different contrasting plaids in a shirt and pants. It just kind of says to me that he's given up on life. (laughs) Just doesn't care anymore. In fact, Connie and I have this agreement that the day that I walk out, I don't care if it's to walk out in the yard and work on the yard, I will be seen by someone. She has the right, if I go out in contrasting plaids, to just call a home and commit me, right? I mean, put her out of my misery at that point. So it's easy for us to judge. We judge people who dive into the same toxic relationships over and over and over again. We judge people based on their actions. We judge based on their words. We judge based on their accent and the region of the country we would assume they're from. We judge people by the religious system that they belong to. We judge them based on their parenting style or, in some cases, the apparent lack of a parenting style. Judgment's leaking out a little, but have you ever caught yourself being judgmental? Like in the middle of it, you go, what in the world am I doing? I'll confess to you, last Saturday, we were um, doing a food distribution event with Northern Illinois Food Bank at Huff Elementary School. Great event. More than 100 families came and were served and took home lots of food to feed their family uh, for more than a week. And so one of the roles that I had while I was doing my serving time there, it sounds like that was a sentence for a bad thing I did, but it wasn't. While I was serving, one of the things I did was I helped families take these groceries to their car. And in the middle of doing that, it hit me that I was being judgmental. Like, I'm loading groceries into the back of a car, in this particular case, a really nice SUV, that's way better than my car. You know, they're coming for help, and they're driving a better car than I am. I mean, it's not hard to drive a better car than I do. I mean, it's a 17-year-old car with 200,000 miles on it, but still, this was way better than my car. And in the middle of that, I caught myself. Fortunately, before that ugliness made its short journey from my brain to my mouth, and I just, in that moment realized I'm judging these people. In that moment, the Holy Spirit just got a hold of me and whispered to me, you know, that might not be their car. They, and in fact, the SUV I was loading into when the thought hit me, they'd gotten a ride with somebody to come and get their groceries. 
So maybe they got a ride. Maybe somebody loaned them the car. It really doesn't matter, though. Because Jesus didn't ask me to come and serve that day to judge people. He asked me just to come and serve them. It's not mine to critique their, critique their financial plan or their car choices in life. God just calls us to live a life of compassion and love and mercy and grace, not judgment. Because in the end, only God knows all the facts about a person. We don't know the journey that person has been on. We don't know the hell that they've been to and come back from. We can't tell with our finite judgment. We can't tell the difference between wheat and weeds. And it's not our job anyway. Jesus puts it this way in Luke 6. He says, be merciful just as your Father is merciful. Don't judge and you won't be judged. Don't condemn and you won't be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. So uh, there's this big part of this parable that says to me, the judgment is God's. I just need to back off. We all need to back off and not judge people. Because when we judge people, there's a high risk that we're going to pull up some good wheat with the weeds. We might have a conversation about this, but we're going to wound more people than do good. We need to work on loving both the wheat and the weeds that are going to be in our world until Jesus returns. The other lesson that I take kind of walks in parallel to that when I think about this parable. And if we're going to live in the weeds, if we're going to live among the weeds, then we're called to have discernment as to how we relate to people. It's a very helpful tool as we live among weeds. Paul says it this way. This is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and in depth of insight so that you will be able to discern what is best and that you'll be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. A few months ago, um, Wally and I were having, Wally Marshall and I were having a conversation and he recommended a book for me. Um, And I love that about him. If you hang around him for more than five minutes, he's going to recommend something to help you grow and be better. It's one of the things I've loved about him for 20 years. So Wally introduced me to this book, Necessary Endings. And it's written by a psychologist, Henry Cloud. And it specifically gave me some frameworks to help with how I use discernment as I'm relating to people in my life. And There's one chapter in particular that's really, really, the whole book is helpful, but this one in particular talks about how people in our lives tend to fall into three big buckets or categories. First, there are wise people in our life. Now, to say somebody's a wise person doesn't mean they're necessarily the smartest person in the room. But here's what wise people do really, really well. When they get feedback, when somebody talks to them about their behavior or their actions or their decisions, a wise person takes that feedback in and makes changes in their life. Proverbs has all kinds of wisdom about all three of these big buckets, but here's what it says about the wise. Correct the wise, and they will love you. Instruct the wise, and they will be even wiser. A wise person, when they hear good, solid feedback, 
then they make a shift in their behavior to start aligning to the feedback they've received. And often when they get feedback, they'll express gratitude for it. Proverbs actually says, you give them feedback, they'll love you more because of it. A wise person sometimes responds by saying, you know what, thanks, I appreciate that feedback. I want to continually grow and be better, so I really do appreciate the feedback you've given me. When we hear that response, it does what to us? It just makes us trust them more, want to help them more, and become a closer friend. And that's true whether the the wise person is a part of our family or our neighbor or a part of our workplace. So we've got wise people in the world. And we also have foolish people. The deceptive thing about foolish people is they may actually be the smartest person in the room. They may be the most talented person in the room. They may have the most experience about the topic that's being discussed. The problem with a foolish person is, though, that they adjust the truth to match their point of view. When you give a fool feedback, they tend to get defensive. They make excuses. They blame others. They may even get mad at you as you're giving the feedback. Well, if you'd been more supportive, if you'd given clearer directions, well, if I'd only known what you really wanted, try to give wise feedback to a fool. They know there's a problem in the room, and they're confident it's not them, right? Proverbs says, a bear robbed of her cubs is far less dangerous than a stubborn fool. That's pretty clear, isn't it? We can't talk to a fool and give feedback like we do to a wise person. It's just not going to help. In fact, there are some of us who've been doing this for a long time now. We say the same feedback to a person over and over again, and we, we do it each time expecting a different result than we've gotten. You know what we call that? That giving the same feedback over and over again? Nagging. Einstein called it insanity. I call it nagging. He is telling me the same thing over and over again. We nag our children, our significant other, our friends, and we are filled with this belief that if I just say it louder, you'll get it. If I say it a different way, you'll get it. And it just isn't true. Fools seldom take in feedback and make change. You have somebody you work with or somebody that reports to you that's like that? Just doesn't take feedback well? Or for maybe for you it's a family member. might even be your spouse. How do we deal with this kind of person in our life? Help a wise person? You give them conversation and feedback. But when we're dealing with a fool, we need a different approach. We help a fool by imposing limits and consequences. So conversation may sound something like this. Look, I don't, I don't want to nag you. I don't want to be that kind of person or have that kind of relationship with you. But I need some help here. Because I've been giving you feedback and it's not resulting in change, either in our relationship or your behavior. So I think the problem is in me, right? I need a better way to give you feedback. So can you help me think through right now how to give you feedback in a way that you can take it in? And you listen as they explain and they model and they show you how they would rather have feedback. You go, that's great. Thank you. Here's the other question I've got. 
If I do my best to do that and the results are the same, what would you like me to do? The closer the person is to you, the tougher that kind of a conversation can be. It's harder to do it with love and respect and patience. But the truth about fools is they are seldom really bad people. The truth about fools is, though, even though they're, bad, they're not bad people, they can inflict some serious pain in our lives. So we need to be wise as we deal with the foolish people in this world. And then there's a third category of people, and they are evil people. And the first time I heard that, I went, I really have trouble thinking that. I have trouble thinking that anyone in this world is just purely evil, right? I mean, maybe, maybe they're just foolish. But an evil person isn't evil simply because they refuse to listen to feedback and make change in their life. An evil person has this desire to inflict pain on others. And when I heard that definition, I went, oh, I know some people like that. They are hoping, they're praying, they're willing bad things into other people's lives. Evil people can't sleep until they've done their evil deed for the day. They can't rest until they've caused someone to stumble. It's very different when we come across an evil person in our life. We can't talk with them because they won't take in feedback. They won't listen. If we set up limits and consequences, they blow right through them. And so the only thing that we can do when we encounter evil is protect the good. Again, Proverbs says, The prudent see danger and take refuge, but the simple keep going and pay the penalty. And we do. We can get hurt if we don't deal wisely with evil people. We can get abused physically, spiritually, emotionally, financially, verbally. Talking and fighting with an evil person will not accomplish anything. The best thing we can do is eliminate or minimize the damage they can cause in our life. So we end the relationship sometimes. Sometimes it comes to the point of blocking their phone number and their email. Sometimes it goes as far as finding legal protection. And we do that not as a punitive measure, not to try to inflict pain on them, but just to protect ourselves and the ones we love and to minimize the damage. And I'll be honest with you, even saying this out loud here for a second time this morning, it still creates some tension in me. Because as I say this about evil people, it sounds judgmental, right? And I'll just admit, it's a really thin line between being a discerning person and being one who's judgmental. And sometimes when we're doing it, it can feel like it's, the difference is just semantics. They're the same, but they're not. The Bible encourages us throughout to pay close attention as we get to know people. Observe them. Listen to them. And proceed with caution when we see signs that they might be behaving foolishly or be evil. And that's at the heart of discernment. It seeks to know, it seeks to understand, as opposed to just standing back and making a judgment about their character 
or their family or where they're headed for eternity. Judging is very different. You know, I'm sure many of you, like me, uh, followed the events of this week with the death and the funeral of Senator John McCain. Um, I have deep respect for the man, even though I didn't agree with everything that he stood for. But it was incredible to me that this elder statesman took time in the final week of his life to write a letter of hope and encouragement to the American people. And there is one quote out of that letter that has been echoing through my mind as I've thought about this parable all through this week. It's when John McCain said, I would like to see us as a people recover our sense that we are more alike than we are different. You know, I think that's a lesson we need to hear, not just in our country, but we need to hear closely and and listen to as Jesus followers. You and I may have differing political views, but that doesn't make us enemies. You and I may have been raised in different types of families with different values. We may have grown up in a different faith structure, and our faiths may be a little different even now. We may have different practices in our life that we follow, but none of that makes us enemies. In fact, you and I are more alike than we are different. And one of the key ways that we're all alike is that given any relationship gone wrong, given any rough circumstance, each one of us has the potential for making foolish and evil decisions in that moment. We have the same potential for those as we do the potential to make a wise decision. We need, some, we need to adopt the same patience in this life that God is showing. A God who has not given up on the weeds in our world, who still is waiting. He's hoping that they'll one day change. He's holding back judgment on them for now. And he commands us to do the same. And so instead of focusing our energies on the differences between us and others, a wise person will live their life in full awareness of God's grace and love. They will live watching for an opportunity to share that grace and love with anyone who will listen to feedback. And a wise person will live in this world knowing that whatever pain an evil person is inflicting on us, whatever our situation is right now, God sees it all. He knows our joy and he knows our pain. And he calls for us to trust in his promise that he's got this and that one day he will make it all right again.